Hello and welcome to the Investment Hour. This week, kicking off our new series, The New Future. Yes, I'm very excited about the series, which focuses on the theme that destruction can clear the path to innovation and has done so repeatedly in the past. So for all the challenges of coronavirus, the crisis also provides multiple opportunities for renewal. It's an idea which has been discussed at length by many leading economists, among them Nobel Prize winner Joseph Stiglitz. If you borrow money for investing in the future, that makes you stronger if you invest well. Uh, Every company does that, and society as a whole through the government needs to do that. And by our own resident economist Chris Dillow, who we have spoken to this week. One big reason why productivity stagnated was precisely that um, firms weren't going out of business sufficiently and, and weren't being supplanted by, by more efficient startups. And that problem um, is going to be even greater because of the lockdown. We will also be talking to Alex Newman about opportunities for technological renewal post coronavirus. And later we'll be joined by Algie Hall to discuss how we can apply this thinking to our investing. I'm John Human. And I'm Megan Boxall. Welcome to the Investment Hour. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. So, Megan, tell us where this feature idea came from. Well, it's something that we've sort of been discussing for a while, and it's been lots of conversations about, about sort of the progress of coronavirus. It's kind of evolved as coronavirus has evolved. And we started, obviously, a few weeks back, back we wrote a feature looking at a changed world and and the the changes that are currently happening, changes in behaviour that are currently happening because of coronavirus, because of the lockdown measures. That has led on to further discussions about whether or not these behavioural changes will become permanent. And I think the longer we've been in lockdown for, the more we've thought, no, they're not all, all going to be permanent. We're not all going to be working from home all the time because it's quite trying at times. But there are t- there are some things which have some parts of the coronavirus pandemic which have really shown up weaknesses and and things that need to be changed things that have been needed to be changed for a very long time from individual companies to entire economies and the fact that these these issues have been shown up by the coronavirus is potentially a an opportunity for 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 building back better that was the original idea it's something that a lot of people are talking about all the time in policy and things and and that's sort of the the basis of this series of features so the idea could be that the future looks very different in many in some ways not always uh to, to the one we have now hence hence the new future as we've uh, called the series and um, what sort of things are we going to be looking at what makes this series so interesting is that it can be applied to so many different industries and i think a really good starting point is climate change as we heard from Joseph Stiglitz there at the beginning, that little clip, he talks a lot about the fact that after the economic damage caused by coronavirus, we should be building building a stronger economy with the climate and with green energy and things in mind. So that's that's a, start, a starting point. That's going to be the next article. We'll also look at healthcare. Obviously, that's a massive topic. Supply chains, finance, fintech. Corporate governance. There was a really interesting story in the magazine this week, uh, written by Mark Robertson, his taking stock column, about uh, Compass raising some money. And it's the first company to offer, through an accelerated book build uh, placing, uh, a proportion to retail investors. And that's a fintech story. And it's ripped up the old rules. And it's it's the way things should go. Well, that's what I think was really interesting about what's happening at the moment, because a lot of these potential processes were in place. Like, fintech's not a new thing, but they weren't being used right. 
And a lot of that was laziness. A lot of that was because people were just sort of accepting the old. And now that we've been forced to change the way that we behave, it's shown that we don't have to accept what was happening before. And, and yeah, that compass thing, that's, that is, it's a really good example of taking new innovation and applying it to, <laughs> to a process at fundraising. They've been in place for ages. They've been in place forever, for as long as the stock market has been around for. And, but this is the first time that, that this fintech has been used in that way. And that's, that's really positive. And it's something that all companies should arguably be doing in the future. I spoke to one of his directors, uh, a guy called James Deal, who, funnily enough, I used to work with. And, you know, he, he is very obviously very pleased that they've got this deal away with Compass, but they've been speaking to lots of people. There was a lot of resistance to using this platform. And it seemed to come, which is called primary bid, incidentally. Uh, and it, used, it seemed to be coming from the vested interests that were involved in, in the process as it used mm. to be. The world's changed now mm. for them. Yeah. No, it's, and it's, it's true across so many so many different sectors. The, these new innovations can really come into, into their own. And, and yeah, that's, that's something that I spoke to Chris Dillow about earlier this week. Hi, Chris. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, I mean, what a fascinating time to be studying, analysing, writing about economics. Does this compare to anything you've ever covered before? Honestly, no. In the sense that, well, obviously, we've had lots of recessions before. And just like this one, they've all been unpredicted and unpredictable. But we've never had one in which a decline in output is seen as as necessary on health grounds. And in that respect, it's unprecedented not only in my rather lengthy career, but uh, in, in economic history. What seems to really characterise this more than previous economic crashes is the, the sudden impact it's had on everyone's everyday and most notably in the job sector. What worries you most about the, the extent of the job losses or the potential job losses during or because of coronavirus and, and the lockdown? Well, the, the mere fact of job losses is itself very concerning, simply because one thing we know for sure is that unemployment is, is a huge source of, of unhappiness. You know, so, so the human cost of unemployment is immense. Second thing that concerns us is that, especially in the UK, uh, unemployment is associated with a huge loss of income, and that means a loss of revenue for other people. Um, so that there is a danger uh, that the unemployment will lead to further weakness in demand. And the other problem is when the lockdown ends, will demand recover sufficiently to get the unemployed back into work? And this is a really tricky one because official macroeconomic forecasts for what they're worth, which isn't very much, expect that unemployment will stay above its pre-lockdown peak for another couple of years. But another problem on top of this is, is the pattern of demand. It's quite likely that pubs and restaurants will not go back to pre-crisis levels of demand and therefore to pre-crisis levels of, of, of employment. And this means that people who did work in, the, in those industries are going to have to find work elsewhere. And this runs the danger of there being a mismatch between jobs and vacancies. Even if vacancies bounce back, which is by no means assured, the people who are unemployed might be a poor match for, for, for the jobs that are available. 
So do you see that shift happening? I mean, where where do you see that shift happening, that where demand for, for jobs may be opening up? Is is that potentially more of a of a skilled sector? I mean, or and and the lower skilled jobs maybe maybe dwindling? Well, honestly, we 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 don't know. We don't know how much this recession is going to lead to permanent changes in, in demand. You know, it's quite possible that it will lead to less eating out and less drinking out. But what it will lead to more of is, is frankly, anybody's guess. And I think we, we must, even more so than usual, but be humble about our powers of foresight. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that is uh, I mean, a very uh, a sensible point. But obviously, people are sort of making calls about what they think may come. And I mean, we're doing it too at the, the IOC. There, there's, uh, you can't help but speculate about what, what might come next. You can help but, but speculate. You've got, you've got to remember that a story isn't necessarily the truth. And we've got to remember, because surely the one thing this crisis has taught us is that our powers of foresight are, are much smaller than we thought. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, goodness, if you if someone had predicted this, even in January, it, the, the extent of the fallout, especially in, in the UK and the US, people would have said they were mad. They would have, yeah, dismissed it. Yeah, the, the only reason nobody said that anyone was mad was that nobody was forecasting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you opened your IC article this week talking about uh, the fact that startup businesses fail anyway. Um, why do you think that what's happening with coronavirus is more worrying than the general ebb and flow of, of startups? Yeah, well, to see this, you've got to remember that loads and loads of businesses fail every year. Right? Some, slightly more than one in ten shut down even in good times now the reason that doesn't normally lead to rising unemployment is that even more firms start up something like one firm in eight is less than a year old now my concern is that the suddenness of this recession and the fall in demand might prevent startups running at their normal rate so Everybody's attention is on job losses and what can be done to prevent job losses. But that's only half the story of economic growth and it's only half the story of how unemployment changes. The other half of the story is new businesses starting up. And any potential entrepreneur might wonder what's the point of starting a new business if if the lockdown could, could, could come again in the autumn or if you know the business which is running perfectly well could, could get wiped out by the sort of bolt from the blue that we've seen this year. Mm, yeah, so you talk about the macroeconomic economic policy and a lot of the measures that are being put in place at the moment, the furlough scheme, the support for individuals and for businesses being just as important, as you say, for the, for the future as it is for the current, current job protection. So what do you think in terms of that policy, the government policy, should, what should they be thinking about next and uh, to support that continued progression of, of a start, good start-up market in, in the UK? Well, I think what they've got to do is to give maximal support for, for start-ups. And that doesn't just mean running the economy hot because the number of start-ups isn't particularly cyclical. What it means is 
being very clear about removing any obstacle to new business startups, you know, making sure that they have low overhead um, and they get support uh, on, on, on rates, maybe not paying rates, uh, as, as is the currently the case for, uh, for, for smaller firms, making sure that um, rents aren't extortionate uh, and making sure that finance is in place. There might well be a case for the government guaranteeing loans not only to existing businesses, as it currently does, but to, but to new ones as well. I think there's going to have to be a much greater focus on how to encourage new businesses. Would you say that encouraging new business and encouraging entrepreneurship innovation is something that the UK in the last 10, 20 years has been good at or bad at? I mean, growth, growth hasn't been particularly spectacular here, especially compared to what you see in America. True. Um, and in particular, productivity growth for the last 10 years has been pretty much non-existent. And that's a sign of a failure uh, of, of, of competition and a failure of innovation. So, so how, how do we make that better? How is, could Coronas be a restarting, a refreshing point to, to stimulate some innovation and some, and some entrepreneurial spirit? Well, I, I would have thought so. But so far, attention isn't sufficiently on this question. Instead, attention is focusing on how, how to protect jobs, which, like I say, is, is only half the story. You know? And there, there is a lot that can be done in principle to support entrepreneurship, as I say, like um, yeah, in, ensuring low, low rents, support for rates and, uh, and such like. Um, in the past, there's been a tendency to overemphasise tax breaks as, as a way of incentivising entrepreneurship, which I would have thought would be a low priority, um, given that the problem with a lot of small firms is that they're not earning enough to pay any tax, mm. or at least in sufficient amounts, you know. Yeah. It's a, it's a point, this sort of regrowth angle, which we're, we're talking about a lot in the magazine at the moment, but it's also something that economists have talked about for, for a long time. And Joseph Stiglitz is one of the economists who, even before the coronavirus came along, he was talking about a momentous occasion for green initiatives to, to stimulate some, some innovation. Um, and this also relates to what other economists have said in the past, talking about creative destruction, um, which was Joseph Schumpeter's um, idea about about building things back better, is now a moment for, for what Schumpeter was talking about? Yes, I, I think you could see the history of the last 10 years, even before coronavirus, as being um, a decline in the pace of creative destruction. And one big reason why productivity stagnated was precisely that um, firms weren't going out of business sufficiently and, and weren't being supplanted by by more efficient startups, and that problem um, is going to be even greater um, because of the because of the lockdown. It's far easier to see what the problem is than to see precise solutions to it. We we know the outline of the solutions, you know, but um, th- there is a lot of uncertainty about. What is what is most important, and I, I, I suspect that what we need here is our broad spectrum policies. You know, um, doing everything we can 
to support entrepreneurs in different ways. There, there, there's no, there's no magic single bullet. No, but um, yeah, just briefly going back to Schumpeter, I mean, a, a point that you disagree with the uh, the famous economists on is is the monopoly powers and and then yeah, what what you said again about competition uh there there is an argument that that monopoly powers have uh, can help stimulate growth because they are so good that they sort of keep building and they keep innovating and i mean what we see in the u.s in the tech sector uh, in particular at the moment especially in alphabet and in amazon they they are monopolies in their respective sectors but they're also innovating incredibly outside their sectors is that a danger? Do you think? Do you think that that is stifling the ability of other smaller companies to to get going? Yeah, I mean, you say they're innovating, but I'm not entirely sure that's the case. And what what they what a lot of them are good at is buying up potential rivals, which might actually slow down the pace of innovation. And if you just look at the big facts, um, fact is that over recent years the US economy has become more monopolistic. And yet, growth in things like GDP per head and productivity is actually slower now than it was before the crisis. So so this alerts us to to the fact that monopolies might not be be good for economic growth. And there's there's lots of reasons for that. In one way in which monopolies use their cash isn't just to buy up potential rivals, but also to lobby governments for for greater protection um, in the form of copyright laws and intellectual property restrictions uh, and so on. And the US healthcare industry, for example, spends half a billion dollars a year on lobbying government. And uh, it alone employs five lobbyists for every single congressman. Now, they're not doing that in order to ensure healthy economic growth, are they? No, <laughs> I, uh, I suspect not. But then the alternative is, is shifting into regulation and tightly regulated industries also struggle with, with innovation and clamping down on what the, the tech giants in the US in particular might be able to do um, and the profits that they might be able to generate. Um, surely that would be would be a stifling for, for their ability to keep innovating? Not necessarily. I mean, we're in the um, realm here of the second best. I mean, we know from, from economic theory that if there is a market imperfection somewhere, and monopoly is pretty obviously a market imperfection, then what looks like another market imperfection can actually help um, to, to move us closer um, to, to, to full efficiency. Well, Chris, thanks very much for joining us. That was a really fascinating conversation. And Thank you. So that was a very interesting discussion, obviously, with Chris. And the overriding point there, I think, that he was making at the end was the, the dangers of monopoly powers, which is something that is particularly prescient in the technology industry, especially in the US. And that's part of the focus of something that Alex Newman has written about this week in his future technology piece which works very well with the overall theme of this new series thanks for joining us alex to have a chat about technology no problem technology is sort of at the core of of this whole whole theme it's so relevant in almost every industry and becoming increasingly so alex do you want to just maybe talk about what the situation is with with the technology and why why this has become such a massive topic 
there's lots of different things we can talk about when we talk about um, technology. But I mean, I mean, with this this piece, I tried to look at two of the big pictures or the two of the big ideas that, that people have for the, I suppose, the coming years and decades and, and specifically how they relate to technology. So the first is, is probably the most prominent and it is both kind of exciting, sometimes scary to many people and, and also, you know, quite baffling. Uh, and that, those are sort of some of the kind of what I've called the techno-utopian forecasts put forward by, you know, futurists like um, the Sil- Silicon Valley inventor and Google associate Ray Kurzweil. So he, he has a very good track record of, of accurately calling technological progress. And in the past, these have tended to focus on, on things we, we sort of now take for granted, like improvements in computer processing power, you know, which actually follow very predictable patterns uh, and as well as, as the way that, that technologies from different fields converge. But some, some of his um, predictions for the, the next 20 years are they're really quite staggering and they, they challenge many of the sort of fundamental things we think, uh, think about what it means to be human, let alone what it means for in- investing. Things about, you know, longevity being extended almost indefinitely, in, you know, virtual reality being indistinguishable from, from real life, um, as well as, you know, lots of other um, uh, lots of other predictions uh, and, and the other the other big sort of story that some people tell about the future is is decidedly uh, more pessimistic and some people including and we, we talk about the, the economist Robert Gordon in, in the piece suggest that actually technology is in relative terms when we look back to the progress technological progress we've seen in the last 150 years is actually stagnating and that we no longer really see the leap forward uh, that really count for economies, productive output, and investors. So without wanting to be too schematic, those are, those are the two ideas we've tried to talk about mm. in, the, in the piece as they relate to uh, uh, technology. That second point I found so interesting in, in the whole argument about creative destruction and where we are and what the opportunities that might be being brought about by coronavirus are. Because the fact that he is talking about progress in the last 50 years not being as as rapid as it was in the previous 50 years seems pretty extraordinary when you think about how far things like data collection have come on now but actually in terms of how we are living yeah so I think the example he used was things like the motor car and things like that were if you fell asleep at the start of the century and you woke up 50 years later the progress would have been huge but if you fell asleep at the end of the second world war and you woke up now actually there hasn't been that many things that aren't recognizable but maybe that does relate to the fact that we've kind of got stuck in a rut of innovation and now is an opportunity to sort of drive some of those really big things that are being talked about. Yeah, the, the AI, the, the longevity, the healthcare side of things. Um, and, it, and it could be a real moment for acceleration in technology. Yeah, it's a very I mean, it's a very interesting inflection point we're at at the moment. And um, and in, in a sense that some of the things that Robert Gordon is talking about, some of the things that Ray Kurzweil are talking about, they're kind of at cross purposes because... Robert Gordon is, is talking about um, primarily the, the effects on the economy and productivity. And, you know, he looks at things like uh, smartphones. Well, if it leaves us all more distracted and more likely to crash our cars because we're, we're, we're checking our, our, you know, the messages just come through on WhatsApp, then arguably innovation does, does not necessarily mean enhancements in pro- productivity, economic growth. That they can be they can be novelties uh, in a sense, and you know he also uh, discusses renewable energy, which we look at in the piece, which 
you know, I would argue there are, there are, you know, for any energy investor, really, really have to pay attention to renewable energy and the way it's going to, you know, it is already disrupting in a profound way how we understand and invest in in. in in energy, but um, it doesn't necessarily lead to, to ever productivity growth. We're, we're just having costs coming down further and further. So, um, so yeah, it is you know it is an interesting uh, alternative take on you know com- certainly compared to some of the monumental shifts which really happened to to the Western world at the beginning of the or the, the end of the nineteenth century and the, the, the beginning of the twentieth when we had mass movement to urban environments. We had the you know the telegram and, and other changes in telecommunications which. You know, it meant that you go from uh, a, a very long lag time in the speed of travel of, of communication to instantaneous almost. And you can only really do that once. So some technological gains can't be repeated, really. And that, that, that's another one of um, Gordon's points. Funny enough, I watched a very interesting film on Netflix this week called uh, The Current War, which is about the battle between uh, Edison and Westinghouse, about the uh, electrical system that they were growing in America. That I mean, electricity was a massive thing, a massive turning point. You know, and it's, they, they wanted to end the night. I, I thought that was, it, it's absolutely fascinating. One, one thing I, I'm struck by when you know we hear the sort of view of Robert Gordon uh, is that you know if technology isn't delivering these these sort of uh, economic benefits, why why are tech shares the biggest shares in the market? Why is the whole market built around the Googles and Apples and and Facebooks and such the like? Yeah, I mean it's it's a very good question, and uh, it would be foolish to to suggest that these companies aren't driving innovations which are which you know which are which aren't really really useful to our lives and incredibly useful for the way businesses uh, do things but I, I suppose it's it's kind of a question of incremental gains in that we've had the we've had the ICT revolution now for, for several decades they don't necessarily you know you can only sort of make that that step change to every, everyone having computers once and just because things because things get faster and data gets more intelligent doesn't necessarily lead to productivity gains i mean obviously the the question, you know, the sort of tantalising prospect that is always dangled by the Silicon Valley type futurists is what happens when, you know, supercomputing power comes along. Do, do things, you know, will we have in the next 20 years another invention equivalent to the step change brought about by electricity? So, again, like like I said, it's um, it's an interesting inflection point. And, you know, there's probably elements of, of uh, you know, both of the futures that we've, we've been talking about, which are, are likely to play out and some elements which will probably be held back. Yeah, that point about the um, innovations coming out of big tech companies not necessarily having a huge role in productivity, that's something that Chris was talking about. And when I, when I put to him that they're, they're being extremely innovative, these big tech companies, he, he questioned, were they really? Are they really being that innovative? And it, it is, it's, it's true. It's hard to actually see much innovation that is coming from those companies in terms of, bringing new products to market. I mean, Google's still making most of its money from an invention that came around 20 years ago. But yeah, if it is a step change, then all of these companies, or most of them, are investing in seriously exciting things, in driverless vehicles, in AI. And I think you mentioned that, Alex, as well, that even when we're talking about like extreme, extremely novel ideas, it's a lot of these massive companies which are actually driving a lot of that, of that investment and a lot of that innovation. We talk about a, uh, a book uh, written by one of um, uh, Ray Kurzweil's associates in, in, the, in the piece, and uh, it's, it's called The Future is Faster Than You Think. So it's written just before, published just before the, um, the pandemic you know, changed our, our whole view of the world. But you definitely come away from reading that book with the idea that the options to put your money are pretty much uh, confined to about 10 
10 companies uh you know on on nasdaq you know most of whom i'm sure you've, you've spoken spoken about when you were look uh, we talk about the um bangs and that really there's you know innovation outside of this small pool is either just going to be swallowed up or uh you know co-opted in some way by you know an amazon and uh, a google or a, uh, or an apple the other thing that you you come away with or i came away with re- reading this book is that some of these very very high uh, 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 projections for for technological development and you know inventions sometimes feel like they you know that they sideline or neglect you know society and politics so you know even if i'm prepared to accept some of the prediction predictions like virtual reality is going to become indistinguishable or that you know at some point in the next 20 years i'm going to be able to upload my mind to the cloud you know is that something really that society wants i mean your your point about autonomous cars we basically have the technology there um and and you know we, we thought that, that was going to be the really hard part is developing the technology but it's it seems to me that the hard part is really going to be selling the idea of cars driving around without without drivers, and that that actually technological uh, progress doesn't you know is in isolation sometimes removes the uh, you know the crucial ingredient, which is is there a market for, for for this? And for investors, that's you know that's a really important important question. You know when you're you're looking at some of these really high technologies, ba- you know battery storage or supercomputing or the you know the what ai can do you know and if society is not prepared to accept some of this then it's debatable whether you know some of these propositions are are investable i mean it's interesting alex you 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 look at something in the future called a mara's law which is how human beings think about the future and 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 the way technology is going to change it Uh, and this is of real relevance to investors and the the way we think about technology uh, and what may happen in the future in terms of investment We, we we kind of get it wrong a lot tell us why yeah, so Amara's law is named after another futurist. Uh, I suppose the way I, I refer to some of these insights as utopian is, you know, I'm myself guilty there, therefore of a, a kind of value judgment, expressing some cyn- cynicism uh, against some of these these technologies, and sort of guilty of one of the things we see, uh, which is typical behavioural trait in, in in investors and, and really everyone in the way they look at technological progress. So we, we first tend to get very over-optimistic about the potential for a, a technology. I think supercomputers, you know, are probably a good example of that right now. But progress doesn't move in a straight line, but it does tend to move forward because we don't get worse at developing supercomputers or technologies, and we learn by doing it. But there always reaches a, a sort of peak of pessimism where a technology doesn't seem to be delivering. But actually, um, that could be a... a, a you know, a really good time to, to, to potentially invest because over time, you know, as, as, as these technologies develop further into the future, we actually tend to underestimate their, their capacity. And to my mind, one of the, the, the best examples of this trend at the moment is the way solar energy has exploded in the last decade. So in 2010, you know, the global installed capacity was, uh, of solar energy was really a footnote in the, in the energy mix. And it still makes up quite a small proportion of, of the global energy, energy mix now so it's easily overlooked but if you if you look look back at, at the, the the way the market has evolved it has it's exhibited a, a learning rate of about 30 to 40 percent so for every doubling in installation or cumulative installation capacity it has cut costs by between 30 and 40 percent so if we run that forward and assume a, a fairly conservative rate of growth for for solar power by the end of 2040, 
you know, some some people are projecting that you know even the most expensive solar energy in the world will be will be below the operating costs of even the cheapest existing fossil fuels, and and you know the writing is going to be on the wall long before that, and you know particularly if we we solve intermittency uh, issues, but because we think about the future in a linear way, it's very hard to see some of these experiential learning curves play out in the future and imagine and imagine what their the effects are going to be like. So, but you know the lesson of the past century is that. Is that experiential learning is is a real principle of of um, emergent and developing technologies? That's a really fascinating point, and I think the whole the whole article is it's really thought provoking, especially at a time like this when we're all sort of it feels like everyone is making big assumptions. Um, and like you say, often it is based on technology which has existed for a while, but whether or not that the demand is there, and, and maybe this is the point, maybe this is the the catalyst which changes demand, changes the way things are regulated and looked at, data being a massive thing that we're, we're changing the way we're thinking about, about using data. Because actually, when you track data for pushing out advertising, that doesn't feel particularly useful or or good for, for individuals. But actually, if we're going to track people's personal data for their, the use of their health, then maybe people will be slightly more lenient about it. So yeah, it, it does feel like there are changes coming based on things that have happened, technological progress, which has already happened. Yeah, one of the, the, the big hope from, from COVID-19 is that, you know, we see the, the massive amount we've spent as, across the world in panic fixing the problem, is that if there is a step change in, in our attitudes to research and development and, and in general science, that that actually could spur... Uh, a wave of of innovation which we've arguably not seen for 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 several decades so you know that 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 could just be only a compounding factor of the the sort of technological innovations we we tend to forget about which are actually happening as well so um so yeah i don't think all is lost from um from from 2020 that's a that's a nice positive note to end on thanks very much alex for joining us thank you the investment so now joined by algae hall how are you doing algae yeah, good. Thanks, John. Excellent. Yeah, and uh, we yeah we've been spending the last uh, forty five minutes talking about the future and what life might look like after COVID, uh, and a big part of that is uh, the green economy and what what might happen there, the Green New Deal, as uh, as some people have been describing it. And and green is the subject of your um, ideas farm this week by coincidence. Yes, happy it is. coincidence. By yeah, yeah. Well, um, one of the things we're doing in the ideas farm, we're looking at fund manager best ideas top fund manager best ideas and we're going green this week looking at uk green ideas um i mean you know companies which can really tap into this theme are extremely exciting um and obviously you know there's there's the point that the green agenda may get a big boost from what's happening now um because essentially this lockdown reminds people that um we live in it you know in a, in an environment in an ecosystem and, um, you know, we've got, um, I'm sitting here today, you know, it's in, uh, you know, it's May and the weather's um, like, it's like a very hot summer's day and it's forecast to carry on being that way for a long time. I mean, you know, there's, there, there are lots of reasons to think something rather odd is going on. Um, but uh, yeah, companies which can, um, you know, actually intelligently offer solutions and create advantages for themselves from the kind of new green agenda. Um, could do extremely well but I mean there, there's also inside that there's going to be lots of greenwashing lots of companies which um, essentially um, try and tick boxes to make themselves look like they're um, 
green businesses, but they don't actually do anything very special. They're not then they're, they're not um, going to make money out of the green agenda. They're just going to, you know, spend money um, trying to look good. Yeah. So this was something that you wrote about in a feature a while back. Green is good. We've uh, where we we put Gordon Gecko on the cover. Um, and, and I think I think if I remember rightly, what you were looking at there was the sort of green factors that matter. And I guess the big question for investors in this new green future is uh, how they tell the difference between companies that are genuinely green and will profit as a result of it, and those that are just just window dressing. Yeah, no, no, I mean, it, it, that, that's, I mean that is the question. And the, the, the term that's um, used is materiality, whether um, companies are looking at addressing material um, uh, issues for their businesses when they're, when they're um, announcing green initiatives. And, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, often, it's often quite hard to tell. You know, lots of stuff sounds good which actually in the end turns out to be greenwashing. I think there's one one famous example is um, Ford's amazing green HQ that it built, which a lot of um, kind of, uh, you know, ESG types kind of lauded. But actually um, their progress on actually producing electric vehicles hasn't been that amazing at all. Um, whereas a company that, like um, Elon Musk's, which, um, do, which perhaps doesn't have the... Uh, greatest plaudits for its governance and things like that. It's actually producing a lot of electric vehicles and a lot of batteries and a lot of solar panels. So um, it's, it's a case of, um, you, know, see, you know, what really matters. What does really matter? Well, you know, I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think basically what really matters for investors, uh, companies which aren't only in, addressing, you know, the important bits for their businesses, uh, in, in terms of making sure they're protected from, um, you know, regulation and things like that and protected from other, you know, idiosyncratic risks, which can, um, you know, come out of, uh, you know, the, the whole environmental um, agenda. But it, but people are offering um, uh, kind of solutions to other people. So uh, in, uh, in, in this week's tip section, we write about a company called Kingspan, which is um, uh, a leader in uh, insulation. And um, the amount of carbon emitted by construction is um, massive. And um, so any company which can offer really good solutions um, is likely to do very well. And Kingspan is, um, you know, investing in um, product innovation, offering, you know, really great products, really, you know, deeply in with its customers and is doing fantastically well. Um, also, another company that I wrote about in um in my ideas farm write-up was Boohoo. Fast fashion doesn't sound very green. Fast fashion doesn't sound very green, but it is. Um, it it will, you know it, it says it's making the right noises. I mean, you know, time will tell. That it's trying to be far more a far more sustainable business, and you've got this quite interesting situation with um, Boohoo, which is they source a, a lot of their products from factories in Leicester, where. Um, there have been lots of uh, criticisms of how those factories are run. Um, it's, it's kind of seen as a kind of dystopia of the onshoring model. So, um, you know, lots of people are reported to be working in terrible conditions and below minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. However, um, if, if you're a company like Boohoo, which has scale and influence, you can essentially um, create a competitive advantage by forcing um, your, your suppliers to um, adhere to higher standards and thereby making it harder for other competitors to get in on your market. 
So um, in, in, in some ways, by kind of, the, you know, the regulations there from, uh, um, from a legal standpoint, it may not be being enforced at the moment, but someone who can actually enforce it is a big, powerful business. And then it makes it harder for other small businesses, competitors to actually muscle in. You're, you know, so you're, you're doing good if you, if, you know, if, if you like, but you're creating a competitive um, or you're, you're strengthening your competitive position. It's quite interesting, you know, the whole idea of, of reshoring, um, because one of the things that COVID-19 has showed up is, is kind of how global supply chains are. And there's been a lot of talk of bringing stuff back. I mean, is this something we can expect to see from more companies, particularly in, in the, the fashion industry? Well, um, it's, it's definitely what's being talked about. I mean, the, the other term is deglobalization that um, people are talking about. Uh, I mean, there's, you, know, you can see the sense in it because, it, you know, supply chains have been, you know, their, their frailties have shown up um, during the um, COVID-19 um, uh, lockdown. Uh, but whether people forget about it or not, obviously, you know, it's good. time time will tell. But um, there, I mean, there, there could be a lot of money that a lot of companies need to invest in their supply chain. So as well as there being beneficiaries, um, we we could see a lot of companies who have really um, you know stretched the work their working capital, kind of like reduce their working capital significantly by um, not investing in their supply chain. They they could. Have um, big bills to pay as we as we come out of lockdown get back to normal as it were i guess that's something we're always mindful of when we're, we're, we're looking at companies that, that we potentially tip to our readers um i mean you know the, getting back to the idea of futurology um you know i guess as, as the tips editor and you know somebody who, who likes stock markets generally the future is something you're always having to think about what how do you try and th- frame the future when we're looking at companies and their prospects well i, I think um you know i think I, I think it's a lot of it's kind of best guessed kind of stuff because no one knows the future the future you know there, there's so many things which are unpredictable so um really if, if there if there if there seems to be an intelligent consensus it's worth following but equally you've got to expect it to as a certain um certain common sense visions of the future to um, prove false. Because, I mean, you know, there are lots of these things. There's no, there's no way of telling whether a trend will persist. Once a trend's established, you've got a far, there's a far better chance that it's, you know, it's, it's going to keep on, things are going to keep on moving in that direction. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's the common sense is the key to investing. So it's like, you know, does it make sense? The more sense it makes, the more sense it makes to kind of, you know, base your investment decisions on, you know, whatever the particular trend is. And one thing we're always quite wary of, uh, and increasingly so, is the sort of blue sky uh, stock picks that, that, that a lot of people get very excited about. I mean, what, what, where do people go wrong looking at these sort of companies that promise everything and, uh, uh, you know, and seem to be based in some kind of trend that's actually happening? Well, yeah, no, I mean, the, I mean, we're we're, we're, come, we're set up basically, um, you know, in, in terms of our, you know, human behaviour, human psychology, you know, greed and fear is the, you know, most basic way to see it. We're set up to kind of see these things which look too good to be true, but believe them, and also overvalue them massively. And um, yeah, no, I mean, it, like, you look at a company which is saying it's going to revolutionise X, Y, or Z. And then you look at the financial resources it has, the size of the industry it's, it, it reckons it's going to exploit. 
and you know if, if it looks ridiculous it, it normally is I mean you know there may be you know that one company that you know is going to break the mold but you know we, we see them time and time again companies promising in the earth saying they've got some amazing technology and the idea that they're going to be the ones to commercialize it if they you know even if they do have it is you know ridiculous because of the amount of, you know that would be needs to be invested in it the kind of partnerships they need to have etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it's often just completely beyond them especially if the industry requires scale a lot of these companies which kind of um purport to have something amazing uh, operating in industries which um you know you have to manufacture and you have to have scale and you have to have a lot of capital put into your business and you know kind of a micro cap just doesn't fit the bill with those kind of things yeah we, we've had a bit of fun with a company like that not not too long ago uh that was i won't name the company so save its blushes uh but but it was making or claiming to make lots of graphene which it was commercializing it seemed to have lots of deals and everything seemed to be great uh, and we were we were always wary but it, we were getting a lot of flack for that well yeah people fall in love with this i mean it's uh, you know it's psychology at work and we can you know if if we're all honest with ourselves, you know, we, we can all um, appreciate how you fall in love with that kind of story. And like, may, you know, maybe we do and have to, you know, and, and I'm sure, well, I'm sure, you know, every, everyone does it, you know, who invests at, at times. But really, you know, that's the time when you need to take a cold shower and uh, <laughs> kind of get back down to earth. But there'll be, there'll be lo- if, the, if the trends that we're thinking are going to take off, do take off, there will be loads of companies which, um, you know, come out and say we're doing something, you know, really special in field X, Y and Z. And, you know, they, they'll be huge disappointments and some of them will be outright frauds. But, you know, these, these trends are often real. You know, graphene is a real thing and it offers to do amazing things. Um, how, how do investors, is there a better way for investors to try and tap into these trends than by playing very speculative small caps that are promising the earth? Well, you know, I think if you, if you want to play that game, if you, I mean, basically, it's, it's only going to work if you've got a really widespread of holdings, because inevitably some will be duds, and you know, you're you're just looking for that one which you know goes to the moon. So, um, you, you know, it's funds would be the way for a private investor to get in, in, into it, or trusts, or, or yeah, or trusts, and probably trust because probably you're thinking about. Um, I mean, you know. If you're, if you've got a decent technology, if you've got a really decent proposition now, you don't need to come to the public market. So I don't, I don't know if that's going to change, um, you know, given what's going on at the moment. But um, yeah, you can you can finance everything off market. So you, private equity investment trusts, which are a great way to hold a broad spread of private equity holdings. I mean, they you know they're one of the options that um, people should be looking to. I mean to buy one share um, in a company that, whose story you've fallen in love with but has no kind of way of substantiating it apart from, you know, it could be some kind of, you know, really um, flaky deals or, you know, who knows what. But, it, but you know, if there's no really good way of a company substantiating what it's claiming, I mean, you probably should not be holding that individual share. Mm. I mean, Scottish Mortgage is a big favourite of... Uh of Investors Chronicle readers, and that, that gives you access to kind of, you know, the very biggest companies in technology and also, you know, a lot of smaller companies that are on the cutting edge of science. 
I mean, Tesla is one of its biggest holdings. We've already talked about them. But technology is, is a really big thing uh, in Scottish mortgage. Technology is really a really big thing in markets altogether. We've already discussed it on this podcast. I mean, for a UK investor, it's really hard to get access to technology through the through the London Stock Exchange. Lots of small companies there. Um, but also, you know, it always seems very expensive. And we, how, how do we, how are we approaching tech, uh, technology from from the sort of from the point of view of giving our readers ideas around that sector? It's tough in the UK. Yeah, no, it's tough in the UK. We're we're looking to um, we're looking to give people more ideas in international markets. So looking to us in particular for um for tech ideas um i mean in, in the uk you're you don't really have much to choose from especially in the most exciting side of tech which is um uh the, you know the, the software companies and some of those um big um online retail propositions although we do have some you know pretty exciting online retailers yeah boohoo among them yeah, and then, and then we've got we've got we've got some interesting niche um, online media companies um, like Rightmove and Auto Trader. So you know there there are you know tech stroke media players out there, but um, or, or just disruptors, I guess you could call them. But um, the the US is really home to the most exciting companies. I mean, there are in, there are exciting companies in China as well. Alibaba, Tencent, that that you know those, those kind of companies, but then you, it comes with a lot of um, kind of governance risk. And you've also got valuation risk in, in the tech sector as well. I mean, everyone is, is chasing these companies; yeah. they're seen as the future. Can they live up to those valuations? Well, I mean, I, I think already, you know, I mean, I think for some years you can look at that sector and say, "Oh, I, you know, I, it, it just looks too rich." Um, the multiples people are being asked to pay. But we do have this exceptional situation where the cost of borrowing is, um, you know, it, it you know it, it's, it's disappeared. There isn't any cost of borrowing. There's there's no, um, you know, there's no alternative. Um, as you know, is, is, is what people have been saying for a long time, and there's even less of an alternative now. So, um, you know, where where does that leave valuations? It's kind of, you know, I think um, a lot of people have been scratching their heads saying this looks like a very expensive market for absolutely ages. But <laughs> what, what do you do? And, 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 you know, and in this, this environment, there's a logic that the best companies, those companies which can create huge returns and reinvest them into growth, those companies have a really, really huge um, value because the value of future earnings is so much greater when um, interest rates are low. I mean, the thing about technology as well is that there has been hanging over it for, for some years, all this, this, the idea that the politicians are going to go after it, it, it on the basis that it invades privacy. It, uh, you know, it, it, it's too powerful. Um, I mean, do, do you think that risk has disappeared as a, as a result of this crisis? No, I, well, I, I think one of the things which um, investors should be watching out for is just how politics develops, because I think a lot of the narratives that we've had, um, especially in America, um, could be amplified by what's, um, what's happened now. Um, I mean, when we had the bank bailout, we saw a lot of animosity towards the banks and that had significant repercussions for them. Um, you could see something similar with the um, with the cor- corporate sector as a whole, and um, the most profitable companies are likely to be most vulnerable in that situation. I suppose you, you've got the whole thing about monopoly power, which was a re- which is a real kind of you know um, big big argument in the states, especially. 
um, before COVID. And you've also got the argument about um, share buybacks and the amount of damage that they do um, to um, the interests of stakeholders as a whole. And the fact that a lot of companies which have been doing huge amounts of buybacks are now getting loans to essentially prop up the balance sheet, which could have been propped up by the money which, which has been to shareholders. And also the fact that a lot of people profiting the most from the crisis are the, you know, monopoly-esque big tech companies, which um, there's been a lot of political heat on. But they haven't um, been asking for loans. They're not the ones that have been asking for loans. In fact, no, what, no, they what... haven't been asking for loans. They've been, they've been profiting a lot from supplying things people want, but also from their monopoly position. So you have, so that's, that's the kind of narrative which was there before, which um, people are likely to get more or could get more heated about. I mean, I don't know, you know, in this, this election in, um, this year in, in, in America will tell us a lot about how the population's feeling and how politicians want to play this. But um, you have, it's a, so you have them profiting more from their monopoly position. And you also at the same time have companies which were, um, by buying back a lot of shares now asking for loans and um we just have to see how livid people are and um just the you know the, the the kind of like the whole populist background um to to politics at the moment means there could be you know real ramifications for the way companies are treated regulated and taxed so it's what i mean it's what you know until until something happens we don't know but it's i think it's something definitely worth keeping an eye on so the U- us election this year is going to, is a big one it matters it will matter to the markets possibly more than it has for some time well i i think they all matter a lot for the market but i mean it's going to be particularly interested to see where the debate goes where the narrative goes yeah lots to pay attention to thanks algy thanks that is all we have time for this week i'm afraid but there is plenty of other stuff in the magazine, including lots more from Chris and another piece from Mr. Bearwell that ties in very nicely with our theme of life after COVID, looking back to the Roosevelt era. As you may have guessed, Phil is away this week, or rather he is at home but having a week off. But he did file his mag column before he disappeared, and it's on another one of the big tech giants, Apple. And Michael Taylor is asking the question that's on so many of our minds, when all the pubs open again? Uh, and specifically JD Weatherspoon, which is looking at for a potential trade. Dave Baxter has gone investment trust bargain hunting in the fun section and they'll be recording their podcast tomorrow. We've got lots of results back in this week, including a surprise entry for Marks and Spencer, which came on Wednesday, and another blow to income seekers in the form of Imperial Brands. And there is loads of fascinating news this week, including the start of another series that we're running, looking at transportation after lockdown, getting Britain back to work. We have key questions for the housing market and inspired by Games Workshop's fascinating deal with Frontier Developments a few weeks ago, we're looking in detail about how investors can get their head around intellectual property, which is the lifeblood of the gaming industry. So thank you all for listening and thanks to all our guests, Chris, Alex and Algie and of course to my excellent co-host Megan who has also written the cover feature this week and masterminded the series will be running fortnightly for the next few months. The new future, how investors can ready themselves for the world of disruptive change unleashed by COVID-19. Pick up the magazine and all good news agents or get online and subscribe if even the sun hasn't tempted you out of lockdown yet. Take care and speak soon.